Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. My guest this week is the host of another podcast. Finlow Costain hosts the Farmgate podcast. And for any of you who are interested in farming, or the natural world, or the food that you eat, it's essential listening. Finlow is also the founder and the CEO of Farmwell, which is a company that helps to generate momentum towards sustainable mainstream agriculture and aquaculture, focusing on the environment, on people's livelihoods, and farm animal health and welfare. Their priorities are to mitigate global warming, integrate agriculture with biodiversity, and ensure that good, nutritious food is available for all. Which is, I am sure you'll agree, an extremely laudable aim. But Finlow is so much more than this because he is talking directly to people in and around government. He's one of the few people I've spoken to who has actual agency, whose voice is actually listened to, and who has a fantastically broad and deep understanding of the systemic issues around food and our ongoing climate and ecological emergency, and has ideas of what we can do to really make change. So we talked for a long time, Finlow and I. It turned out, in the end, to be two podcasts. We're going to run them back to back, so if you listen to this one, the next thing that loads up on whatever is your favourite podcast medium should be the second part. So, for the first time, people of the podcast, please welcome Finlow Costain. So, Finlow Costain, what a great pleasure to invite you to Accidental Gods podcast. I have been a fan of Farmgate pretty much since you started. So, thank you for coming, and how is life down there in Dorset? Well, it's very good. And, and Manda, thanks so much for having me. It's a very daunting thing because usually I'm the person doing the interviewing. And of course, here I'm in the spotlight. Uh, and, and just something I'm really curious about. How did you come across Farmgate and why did you start this? I'm a smallholder. We have land. I My passion is regenerative farming. I put regenerative farming podcast into Google or actually Ecosia, because, hey, it plants trees. And, and I think yours was pretty much one of the top ones that came up. Can you give us the edited highlights of how you came to be the person doing Farmgate and being the founder and chief executive director, etc., etc., C-suite of Farmwell and all of the things that you do? Oh, gosh. it's I mean, how long did we have? I started in theatre and I, 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 I dabbled in politics. And then I got to the point where I just really wanted to be able to make as much of a difference um, in a particular area as possible. And for me, land use and the way that we farm is, is, is kind of the Cinderella story in the whole climate and biodiversity thing. There's been so much focus within climate change on things like transportation and energy. But for me, land use is the really big opportunity. It's, it's how we can solve these problems. Um, but the trouble is that, that so many people who are looking at, at climate policy or biodiversity policy or food 
policy are looking at one element rather than trying to put those things together. And in recent years, um, there are a lot more people starting to put these things together so that we start to get multifunctional land use um, rather than just saying, oh, this bit of land can do that, this bit of land can do that. And I think that's really important. And that's where regenerative agriculture comes in. That's where the work that I'm doing comes in. And actually, it's where the work that the UK has been involved in since the Brexit referendum um, has been positioned. I'd like to drill down into a little bit of that before we start looking at land use, farm well, and what you just said about post-Brexit, which which is fascinating, frankly. Um, what politics did you dabble in? Because it was, from the conversations we've had before, it was interesting and I think it was relevant to what you've gone on and done. Yeah, it's something I'm always very cagey about because I'm working with politicians from, uh, you know, from all different walks of life. I don't like to say, well, this is where I came from, but I tell you because because I like you, Amanda. I came from a family that was really active politically. And at the time, you know, being active politically in the 70s meant that you were uh, on CND demos, that you were traipsing round uh, American air bases, sitting in ditches, waiting for the police finally to let the coach through to pick you up. And I have many memories of, of sitting in wet ditches in, in what felt like November. And so that, you know, that was a quite a sort of radical upbringing, I suppose, in that way. And, and as, as you know, I got older and my parents got older, that, uh, that sort of interest in in nuclear disarmament then evolved into um, other things like uh, like the environment. And my parents were not super active, but they were active in the local Labour Party. And then in the 80s, when the miners' strike happened, I, you know, I was talking to my nine-year-old about this the other day because I thought it was you know, an interesting thing for him to think about and the way that society pulls together and works together. But during the miners' strike, you know, which from my perspective as, as a 12-year-old in, in 1984-ish, <laughs> it was it was something that was happening up in the north, but we were still going round the houses with cardboard boxes collecting tins of beans and and other um, other other foodstuffs that could be sent up because food yes. was so important. Because if you didn't have money, if you weren't working, you couldn't feed your family. Yeah. And so you know that kind of links back, doesn't it? Really to to what we're talking about here today. And so I grew up immersed in Labour politics, flirted with the Green Party um, a bit later in life, and became. Uh, the first National Party manager for the Green Party of England and Wales um, in around 2000. So I did I did two years from 1999 to 2001 um, trying to new green the Green Party. So it was the idea that, you know, they had got a couple of members of the European Parliament. They got lots of councillors. They hadn't yet got people in Westminster. So how did we take this party that was very committed, had some really strong ideas, but was a fairly ragged tag um, sort of group of people because they hadn't had that uh, the funding uh, available mm. to to professionalize in that way and how did we help the start the process of professionalization so i did that then i went away um and i i kind of you know having having you know gone through the general election with the greens um and having sort of helped write the manifesto people were were phoning up um wanting to know how to vote for the green party and and that sort of thing and why they should vote for the green party and all the time i was just thinking this is such a small party they need to vote for the mainstream parties <laughs> they need yeah. to they need to get that in and i obviously i couldn't say actually get out and vote labor because that's how a change is going 
going to happen. Yeah. But I, I left the party fairly shortly after that general election, went back to Labour, stood as a Labour parliamentary candidate in 2005, worked incredibly hard, learned an awful lot, lost, you know, came, came second, which, which, you know, which was good because other, um, other Labour Party candidates in the region in the East were dropping from second to third. So I maintained that second place, but there Yay. were no prizes. And then went off and got involved in farming and food and agriculture. And and over the that, that sort of intervening decade, I became much less um, interested in individual political party, much more interested in pragmatism and actually how change happened. And I have felt incredibly comfortable working with the Conservative Party over the course of the last five years to actually embed the changes um, that they have been talking about. They are in government, so there's no point in talking to a party that's not in government about how to make that change and working with them. Because actually, do you know what? It doesn't matter which political party you're part of. There are people, there are people who are a waste of space, but there are people who are genuinely committed, have some genuinely quite revolutionary ideas and uh, and who really want to create that change. And, and you know what, if we could somehow extract the, um, the competitiveness, the aggression from politics, boy, we'd make some progress a bit faster. I'm writing that down. Um, so that I don't forget to come back to that, because I think that's a really interesting concept and something I'd like to explore. But let's, before we get to that, you've set up Farmwell, are the amazing host of the Farmgate podcast, farming, food, agriculture, and biodiversity. And you always say those two together are the core of what you're doing professionally just now. So can you outline for people why agriculture and biodiversity are for you one of the key planks of what we need as we move into the transition time of the global emergency? We're about to release a report about soil health. Um, it, it may even be released when when this goes out. And the concept of this report is that soil health is a national security issue. It's an issue um, that we need to be thinking about globally in terms of maintaining peace and stability. And, you know, you're a writer, you spend your life um, thinking of narratives, explaining narratives, telling, uh, explaining the way the world works through stories. And for me, an entry point Five years or so ago, um, maybe even even longer than that, my my eldest is nine, my youngest is seven, and I became really aware of the fact that by the time they were my age, so I'm I'm 49, about to be 50, by the time my kids are my age, it's going to be 2060. Mm. Now, 2060 is is the point of dystopia in many people's minds. If we think ahead to what's going to happen in terms of climate change, you know, we're kind of thinking to 2040 and we're thinking, well, is it going to be two degrees by 2040? If we get to 2100, there's the danger that we're going to be over four degrees if we don't get our act together, or even more, four to six degrees. And so what is it in 2060? And we look at the incredible catastrophes that we've had around the world over the course of just this last year, um, at a point at which you know the world has hit one degree, so 6.4 million acres on fire 
in America. 45 million acres of forest fire happening in Russia, which we, which we don't hear about. Wow. In Zhengzhou in uh, China, I know I've pronounced that incorrectly, um, 24 inches of rain over three to four days. That's a year's worth of rain in three to four days. Australia has just had, uh, in New South Wales, there have been floods this year, uh, which is on the back of, you know, one of the worst bushfire seasons that just went on and on and on. And, and in Europe, you know, we've seen those incredible pictures in Germany in the Rhine Valley yeah. of uh, of that land collapsing. I mean, this is all happening um, when the world's reached one degree. What happens by the time my kids are my age? And my fear is that that we're really going to be inside somebody's vision of dystopia. And so I want to stop that. <laughs> you know, that's my motivation. I don't want them to grow up and to be struggling in a world which is really falling apart. And so the question is, well, how can we get there? And the low-hanging fruit of energy and transport and to an extent housing is already being grappled with. Mm. But land use just hasn't been talked about. And I think it's partly because it's complicated. Um, you know, there aren't easy solutions with land. You can't just say, well, we're going to shift from um, fossil fuel based this to wind based that. There's, it's, it's really complex. And, and at the same time, you have um, politicians and NGOs sort of vying for land to be used for one thing or another thing. And, and that sort of just created even more complexity into the conversation. So what we're trying to do in the work that we do is to reconnect those various different dots um, so that we make a picture, make a vision that people um, can start to deliver. And it's a big change. I mean, you know, let's not underestimate this. We're talking about a food system that's grown up over the last 70 years um, and got itself into, a, into an incredibly difficult and perverse situation. And we have to change that. And the challenge, you know, with climate change and biodiversity loss, uh, you know, right the way through is that Humans are really good at evolving to deal with the changes that we face. We're really good at seeing things and making a generational shift. We don't have that time. Yeah. We've got to do this evolving. We've got to do these generational shifts in a very, very short space of time. And that's, you know, that's that's why, you know, we're having these conversations. That's why you've got people from Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, on the streets of London, because people are finally waking up to the fact that there is some urgency about this. And, and you know, just by the way, isn't that fantastic mm. that we're now having a conversation about how urgent it was? Yes. Because don't forget, back in 2014-15 in the UK, the conversation was still about whether climate change existed or yes. whether whether it didn't. Yes. And we've got past that. And, and you know, yay, go, go us. Yes, go us. Although I, I don't have many Tory friends, but the one that I occasionally talk to who is quite high up in the party, but not an MP, and the rhetoric that I get on every conversation is there's no point in us in the UK doing anything because China, um, which I guess is what the Daily Mail is telling them to think. So leaving that aside, assuming that the people that you're talking to do think there is something worth doing, can you outline for people listening how Farmwell, how the processes that you're engaged in and are promoting, how it is in material and logistical terms that moving towards regenerative agriculture can assist us in the climate and the ecological emergencies? 
Yes, I'll, I'll absolutely try and do that in just a moment. But first, let's go back to China because it is a really important point. You know, it's a it's a question that was raised at a kids' party that I was at this weekend. Uh, that my that my lad was at. I was, I was one of the dads, um, and yes. uh, and one of the other dads said, "Oh well, there's you know there's no point in doing anything until China sorts yeah. itself out." Well, okay, China is a newly emerged economy. It is still an emerging economy. Yes, they are absolutely industrializing, but they're doing so in a Context of a climate emergency and a pollution emergency, in particular in China, um, the Chinese government is only too well aware of the challenges that they face. And although their strategy that they're putting in place is for 2060 rather than for 2050 for net zero, do you know what? Because it's a planned economy, because China has a history of delivering on its strategies, I have much more faith that China might actually get there than we. In in a democracy where governments are changing every five years, and I'm, I'm not for one moment suggesting that a planned economy is the way to go, but within a democracy, it is a challenge because you know we might go from something which is entirely Trumpian at one point to something which is entirely progressive at another point, and and one can unpick another, and you have society sort of changing the the likelihood of success of these various different policies and strategies. We, we could discuss that because actually. That is what's going to flatten us, and that's what's going to lead to your kids and our grandkids not having a future. And maybe it isn't that this is a good thing that we don't have a planned economy. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. No, the only thing I was going to say was just on that was that you know I, what I think is really important when people are thinking about what China needs to do is to think about legacy and. Britain was at the forefront of the industrial revolution. We have been pumping fossil fuels out for 250 years. Our legacy is, if not the biggest in the world, almost the biggest. And there is some debate about whether the contribution from the USA is greater or less than the UK's. But the UK has this huge legacy, and so I think that we have a, a tremendous responsibility um, to step up to the plate. And make sure that we are、um, showing global global leadership, and that we are、um, recognizing this historical、um, uh, impact that we have made, and and helping other countries to see that because we are making the change and we're leading that change, it, it is easier. It becomes easier for them to follow. And to be fair on the UK, you know, we did have the very first Climate Change Act.、Um, we are doing pretty well on、um, on integrating renewable. Um, into our economy, but part of the challenge is that we're no longer manufacturing. So actually, an awful lot of、uh, of our emissions have now been sort of offshored.、Um, we have. Started decoupling our economy、uh, from fossil fuel emissions, but that's because Wait, we've offshored China. Things <laughs> to China, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah when, when my kids have stuff for Christmas, it's stuff that's that you know that's coming from China as much as from other places, and it's contributing to their emissions, and it doesn't show up in our inventory. So I have two questions because you're obviously quite connected into the hierarchies that I'm not. I have never found that that argument of we have a responsibility has ever floated at all with any of my right wing friends. They don't care. They say if we don't if we don't do, you know, if we don't have our nuclear submarines connected so that we really piss off China right before the climate conference, or if we don't open the oil field in the Shetlands that we've just given clearance to, then our economy will tank, and the Russians will, or the Chinese, or somebody else will have a an economic advantage. And what we did in the past is irrelevant. Do you find people who listen to the "we have a responsibility for what we did in the past" narrative 
of the people who are currently in power, because my progressive friends all agree with that, but they're not, as you pointed out, the ones making any difference to what happens. It's a fair pushback. It's a fair question. And I I suspect I would probably agree. I don't think I'd be going into a a government minister's office and saying, look, you've got to do this because (laughs) three generations ago, um, our grandfathers were were shoveling coal into a a, a factory furnace. Um, No, I, I mean, I think people... Generally speaking, people don't change what they do because of one uh, bit of information. You've got to build a jigsaw, yeah. and um, and 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 that's part of the argument. Um, but I think you know when you're talking to people, people who are not just on the right, but people who are actually currently in control and responsible for the way things are going, there's got to be a balance, and um, and, and no government of whatever complexion is going to implement policies that it thinks is going to lead the economy into, uh, you know, into the doldrums. Uh, We've got to find solutions that work economically, that work socially. Um, You know, there are challenges around agriculture where, you know, if we, if we start to produce food suddenly, um, uh, in the way that I want to produce food, i.e. through regenerative agriculture, through agroecology, then if everybody did that at once, we would see, you know, perhaps quite sudden price increases. And there would be a real challenge there for the poorest people to uh, to be able to feed themselves. We've got to do these things gradually. And we've got to um, sort of identify that particular threat and work out ways to mitigate it so that we can get food to people more cheaply, um, so that we can make sure that people have the right nutritional balance, so that they understand how they can cook particular foods, so that they can produce really good meals, mm. even if individual ingredients, the prices of those have gone up, that they can produce really good meals for basically the same price. I'd love to unpick that because we're heading into an economic field, which is one that I understand. But I still would like, for people who haven't listened to past episodes of our podcast and don't really know what regenerative agriculture is, yeah, what what is it? And, and also you mentioned agroecology. So on a farm scale, let's assume we've got, I don't know, a thousand acres in Suffolk. I was listening to a podcast with a guy who has exactly that um, and is farming it regeneratively. What does it do? How does it work? How is it different from what they're doing before they became regenerative within the industrial agriculture model? So, so in in basic terms, you know, we've used the terms um, agroecology and regenerative agriculture. To me, they're they're pretty similar to each other. Agroecology is more of a scientific term, whereas regenerative agriculture is uh, is is a process by which you deliver agroecology. Um, and there are again various different forms of regen, but essentially they are looking at four key principles. So traditional agriculture, as we've understood it over the course of the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years, has been about simplifying food production, has been about making things as, uh, stripping things down, making it as easy as possible, using uh, synthetic fertilizers, perhaps um, synthetic chemicals of one kind or another to add here, to add there, uh, to top up uh, deficiencies in nature. And, and the way that some people would describe it, and, and I have done myself at times, is farming despite nature, where agroecology is farming with nature, in balance with nature. And this is what we've got to do now. We've got to restore that balance because soil health is plummeting. Can you talk a little bit about soil health? Just tell us when you say soil health is plummeting, how do we measure it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? That's a huge question just in itself. But if you've got soil that has no life in it, then it's it's dead. And um, there's a, a book called Farmageddon by Philip Limbury, who runs Compassion and World Farming. And he describes very beautifully 
beautifully the way that some of the orange groves and almond plantations are in California, where he says, you know, frankly, they might as well be, uh, the soil might as well be uh, a field of polystyrene balls for all the good that they're doing. It's just everything is brought in. Every nutrient is synthetically applied. Pollination is often done, you know, if, if not by hand, then by by machine. Bees that you bring in, you, you bring in 20 hives of bees, you let them be there for a day and then you take them somewhere else the next day and the bees don't like this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, and and so it's it's trying to get away from this artifice that we've uh, that we've created for ourselves, which has inherent in it all kinds of catch twenty two. So farmers, you know, I mean, uh, that farmer with his his thousand acres um, that, that you were talking about. I mean, I, I'd shudder to think if, if he wasn't agroecological, if he was just a traditional um, arable producer, how many tens of thousands of pounds a year he would be spending just in terms of those chemical inputs. Um, when nature can do the job for us, you know, nature um, is fantastic at producing um, the nutrients that it needs if it's given the chance to. So what we're talking about with soil health is moving away from, um, and I, here's, here's an aside, when I was a student, I went through a period of going from um, washing and conditioning my hair every day, which is maybe why so much of it is falling out now. Um, and I went, I, went to, uh, I went to the point where I didn't want to wash it at all. I wanted it to regulate itself. Now, if I left my hair um, uh, for one day, then it was fine. If I left it for two days, it was greasy as anything. It was just awful because it had become dependent on, on those conditioners and shampoos. Now, if I did that two or three times, then by the second day, my hair was regulating itself quite happily. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem. And, and gradually I could sort of build up. And, and that transition from conventional agriculture to organic takes uh, between three years and seven years, depending on, uh, and depending on the land, depending on, on the products. Uh, and what that's about is trying to help the soil to relearn how to regulate itself, to allow uh, those, those natural nutrients back in, uh, to allow uh, the various fungal membranes in there, the insects, the tiny microbes to get back in there and start doing that work for you. With organic agriculture, um, one of the criticisms of organic has always been that versus mainstream agriculture, you might see a dip in yield. And uh, and so people have always said, well, you, you therefore can't feed the world because we need so much more food to feed the world and, and organic won't be able to do that. Well, I mean, a cu couple of things there. I'm going to keep getting diverted. Keep keep pulling me back, Manda. And help. That's good. That's good. Keep going. Uh, and so, it, first of all, we can already feed a world of nine billion people, even though we don't yet have a world. We just need to distribute the food we better. We need to distribute it better and stop waiting, wasting so much. And people talk in terms of wasting a third of the food that we have. But actually, I saw a report um, you know, a few years ago that showed that if you include obesity uh -huh. right. as a type of food waste, uh, more calories than individuals need, then actually half the food that's currently produced is wasted, which is just, just madness. Um, and so we can feed the world um, with a dip in yield. The question is what we're producing and how it's, how it's distributed. I am... Um Having interesting conversations, I was I was spat at in a public meeting by a guy who's an organic farmer because I was talking about regenerative, and he said you're just renaming organic. and And my argument was no, organic can be great big fields of monocultures with pretty much dead soil. You're just throwing different chemicals at it. My friend, who's a was before he retired, an agricultural uh, salesman for many companies, said he sold more products and inputs to the organic people. They just weren't from Monsanto. 
Um, so their land, you know, they probably didn't have quite such bad runoff into the rivers that killed everything, but it probably, you know, copper sulfate on potatoes probably wasn't doing the rivers that much good. But regenerative, my understanding, is that it goes very much further into working with the land, at least on a practical level, if not on an energetic and spiritual level. And actually, quite a lot of the regenerative farmers that I listen to talk in quite spiritual terms about their connection to the land in ways that industrial farmers don't. Can you talk a little bit about that? And you've helped me um, an awful lot there because um, this was exactly the point that I was sort of trying to get to, that organic I've always seen as, and it may well be that I get spat at by an organic farmer for saying this, is not mainstream agriculture, but it's it's a different kind of mainstream. It's still about rules. It's still about um, managing inputs um, as much as it is about outcomes. And so it's a kind of a lighter version of mainstream. And the reality is that an awful lot of organic farmers today are actually farming agroecologically. They're going much further than they have to within organic certification. Um, and they, you know, they might be farming regeneratively or using adaptive multi-paddock grazing, which is one of the, uh, the tools that she used within regen with livestock. What regenerative agriculture is doing, it, it is, it's, I mean, for some people, for many people, it does have that slightly spiritual element, but it's it's getting back in there with nature, understanding nature's processes in a way that you don't have to if you're effectively given a manual of how to produce something. And really thinking about how the hydrology works, making sure that water flows properly in the soil that you have, really focusing on photosynthesis, making sure that you are getting maximum energy uh, from the sunlight, that you are encouraging and allowing, enabling the nutrients to cycle from the top of the soil, further down the soil, from the hedgerow into the middle of a field, and that you are encouraging complexity rather than managing simplicity to one extent or another. You're encouraging complexity because it creates, um, it, it makes your farm healthier, it makes your livestock healthier, it makes your crops healthier, but it's, it's not just good enough to be complex. <laughs> You've got to be complex and connected. So it's encouraging that connectivity as well. And so what Regen Agriculture is doing is helping farmers to understand those principles and then work individually on their farm in a bespoke way um, to make sure that their farm is as productive as it possibly can be. And so, you know, from that from that perspective, you have a lot of you know regenerative purists who would say, well, you 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 can't just sum up what regenerative agriculture is. You, you can't just um, just pin it down, which I think is is often unhelpful because um, it doesn't it doesn't give people a, a vision and a way through to understand it on their land. But actually, it is about those principles. It's about stepping away and taking a risk. And a lot of what the Farm Gate podcast is trying to do, in, specifically, I mean, we tried this within Farmwell as well, but particularly the Farm Gate podcast is about de risking regenerative agriculture um, by having farmers come on and talk to me about um, some of the challenges they've had, um, some of the, the risks that they've taken that haven't worked, but also to talk about the things that have worked so that farmers who are thinking of of becoming regenerative can feel much more confident that, um, that they're doing the right thing. And, and farmers are, are fantastic rubberneckers. When I, when I used to live in, in Scotland, um, you know, the farmer I lived next to dug a hole in the field. I, I didn't know why he dug a hole in the field. I'm not sure anybody else knew why he dug a hole in the field. But but lots of other farmers then dug holes oh, in the fantastic. field. Because, 
<laughs> I think he was trying to solve drainage because um, because he had a drainage problem, and so he was digging a hole in the field. Just, I mean, goodness knows why, because it didn't make any impact whatsoever. But but the thing is that these days, you know, in the old days, uh, you go back even just a generation, let alone a hundred years, the only type of farming that you could rubberneck. Um, around was was what was going on yeah. near what you could ride to what was yeah exactly whereas whereas Twitter social media Instagram means that people can rubberneck um, a, a, around the world let alone just across the UK and so um, I mean rubberneck is a is a pejorative sounding term but actually what it means is that share ideas share ideas share knowledge and there are you know, a huge burgeoning networks of fantastic farmers regenerative farmers um, uh, in the UK and elsewhere who are learning from each other supporting each other um, even you know selling products together even if they're at different ends of the country and you know and it's and it's that kind of thing, Manda, that really makes me feel hopeful about the future, because there are so many people now who are recognising the challenges uh, and the changes that need to be made and who are sharing information. And I can see the revolution beginning, if you like. Um, The snowball is starting to roll. Yes, brilliant. The thing that struck me most about a recent edition of Farmgate, talking to Claire, where they'd won their award, was that she's as focused on the water retention of the soil, on water cycles, and watching the devastation in Germany, particularly when that mountain just basically washed away. And even here in this, you know, our lovely Shropshire countryside, last winter when we had big rain, there was pretty much an entire field that ended up on the road. Beautiful, rich red soil, gone. And I talked to local farmers and I said, we need to be planting more trees. And they went, oh, no, can't have trees. That, that reduces the grass and the grass. And, and you think, no, actually, guys, listen, please, we have to shift our focus on this. But listening to the regenerative farmers and the extent to which building soil health builds the water retention, changes its ability to act as a sponge so that we're not just solving climate change because the soil holds more carbon, We're increasing biodiversity, which if we increase soil biodiversity, we're increasing plant biodiversity and therefore insect biodiversity and therefore going all the way up to the many, many species that we are currently managing to extinguish. We're also solving a lot of the problems of flooding that are heading our way. So it seems like it's such an obvious multi-win. My question then is, you're working clearly at the higher echelons of the people in power who make the rules and regulations that define whether it is actually going to be competitive economically for farmers, do they get, first, that this is necessary and second, that this is happening? I I think that they get that there are problems that they need to address. And I think that they get generally, um, you know, some some of the solutions that, that we're talking about. The challenge is then how you reward, how you direct, how you use state levers mm. um, to create change. And, you know, if you if you want to sort of sum up um, the approach of different political parties in, in, in a trite phrase, then when Labour gets in um, and has a great idea, they tend to tie things up with bureaucracy. And when the Tories get in and they have a great idea, they don't fund it properly, so it doesn't happen. And it, so it's, 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 try, it's trying to sort of find a way through that. And actually, this government has done a very good job of having some really good ideas, but then wrapping them in bureaucracy and then not funding them properly, which is... You kind of a, a double whammy and i think you know part of that cha- part of that challenge in terms of the uk is that defra is 
is a big department. I mean, there are 4,000 odd staff. And so inevitably issues get siloed. You've got, you know, a, a group of civil servants working on soil, a group of civil servants working on, on farm animal welfare, a group of civil servants working on something else. And, and even, you know, when it comes to climate change, that's managed by three different departments, I mean, or, or more. I mean, in terms of agriculture and land use, it's three different departments. So uh, you have the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which is responsible for um, climate change policy. And so they want to drive down emissions. They therefore ask the Committee on Climate Change to come up with ways to reduce emissions, not warning, but emissions. Um, and so the Committee on Climate Change does that and it makes recommendations to DEFRA that DEFRA then have to implement. And so it, it's it's all very, very bitty. And uh, and, and so, so I think that they, they do get it, but at the same time, they have got to find ways of funding this that fit within a spreadsheet, that fit within a strategic document, mm. that the Treasury is going to approve. Um, and so very often, um, Treasury is more interested in things like inputs, you know, pay farmers for putting a hedge in rather than understanding the outcome that's trying to be delivered by putting that hedge in and, and rewarding that, um, which might mean that a hedge goes into entirely the wrong place. I mean, that, that's just a, a hypothetical. It's not joined up thinking. So what we need to do is buy them all a copy of Mariana Matsukasu's Mission Economy and lock them in a small room till they read it, <laughs> because she has got the ideas of how to create joined up thinking in government. But we also... I mean, basically, we just need to sack the Treasury, don't we? Because because we don't have time. It, so speaking as a regenerative economist, there was a fascinating study done by Positive Money, I think. It was a while back, so a different cadre of MPs, but one in 10 MPs understood where money came from. Okay, yeah. And I would be surprised if it was that many in the current government. And you said earlier that one of the problems with regenerative agriculture is if we all start growing the food in the way that needs to be grown, we'll have sudden price increases. We only have sudden price increases if the government decides that that's how they're going to let things happen, because they can quite easily change their series of funding to farmers so that so that food is free. You know, we could easily make food free if that's what we wanted to do, because money is an agreement and how we use it is our choice. But we have these people who still see government funding as if it were a household budget and don't understand that governments, there's this whole, you know, labour taxes and spends, and they don't understand that what government does is it spends the money that it makes because it's allowed to make money. If I, as a, gov as a household, made money, you would lock me up. The government spends and then it taxes. And if it chose to spend on the things that mattered and tax the stuff that we don't really want then the ta you, don't, you don't need to have the taxes to fund the spending. You make the money and then it goes out and then you take it back. And my question always for Tories, and they've never answered it, you know, they go, oh, the NHS is this huge money sinking. Where do you think the money's going? Is the NHS putting it in a field and burning it? No, they're paying people who pay tax. The only way it slides out of the economy is when it goes to the people who don't pay the tax. And that's because you're not taxing them right. You know, if you taxed it, everybody and you wanted it back... You could get it back, and because you're not addressing the, uh, the you know, the the conditions that create ill health that can be avoided, um, yes. you know. So obviously, yeah. you know, we're starting to do that, or we have been doing that with with smoking. But but obesity is, you know, is, is, is a huge tie bomb. And I, there was a report, I think it was a McKinsey report, uh, a few years back, that talked about the UK economy and, and reckoned that obesity was costing the NHS or costing the economy, sorry, forty seven billion pounds a year. And I'm not quite sure how they came to that figure, but it was the impact on the NHS. 
NHS, the impact on days of work lost, the impact on you know, a whole range of different yeah. factors. And, you know, so, so as you say, we can, we can make decisions um, around that. I want to go, go back, if, that, if I may, and I'm not quite sure how to segue neatly um, to, um, to what soil should be doing yes. and, 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 to, and, and to that work that's going on on the FAI farm in Oxford and flooding and soil health, yes. because I think it's, it's really, really important. And you did ask me earlier on to sort of explain why soil was important, and I, and I never quite did, and, and you touched on it. But I'm just going to give you a list here of some of the things that soil does um, and why it's so important. So in terms of climate change, soil can release carbon, for example, when we plough or it can absorb and sequester carbon. There's a fantastic uh, bit in the, in, the, in the film, you know, which has its flaws, but at the same time, there is still some really exciting stuff that happens in the film Kiss the Ground. And there's this sort of wonderful moment when, um, when the soil scientist who goes out to talk to farmers is showing what happens in uh, springtime when all the farmers are ploughing and shows the huge carbon plumes that are sort of rising across the USA and travelling around the world, but then shows what happens in summer when the plants are growing and it just absorbs all that carbon. I mean, it's just the most, I think it's only a, a 30 or 40 second sequence that he's sort of showing there, but it's just, it's fantastic. You know, a picture can tell can 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 tell the story of a thousand words, but it, it really does in that instance. But at the same time as sequestering carbon, you're if you're farming regeneratively, you're rebuilding that organic matter. And so if you've got livestock in your rotation mm. uh, that are pooing and weeing and treading um, uh, uh, plants down into the ground, rebuilding those nutrients, cycling those nutrients, they're actually building soil, um, or building organic matter. And although there is a finite amount of the geology of the, the rock that's broken up that's part of that soil, that organic matter can build and build and build because we've stripped it down so much over decades. And so that's helping to restore biodiversity as well. For me, soil is the bedrock of biodiversity. If you get your soil healthy, hmm under the ground, then everything above ground starts to flourish as well, from the smallest species to the largest species, uh, if they're given that opportunity. But also, you know, in, in, as well as that biodiversity restoration and that um, carbon absorption, uh, that sequestration, we're seeing climate adaptation as well. And you touched on this. If you have soil that's functioning properly, then it is um, absorbing water rather than having water just run off the land uh, to flood. But it's also holding that water so that when there is a drought, that farm continues to produce grass or produce other crops and continues to be productive. So if you've got the hydrology working, not only are you holding back water so you stop estates on floodplains further down the river flooding and going through the harrowing experience of that, you're also making sure that that, that land continues producing food even in long hot spells. I mean, and, and, in, and in Australia, you can see uh, where you've got regenerative farmers, you know, after in places that were having sort of 20 or 30 years of drought where everything was just barren around and about. You had these little green oases where people have been farming that way for that length of time and, and nature was still working. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, you know, if we think of in, in the UK, the way that most people interact with farmland is through public rights of way um, and through amenity value. And if you have land that is working really well, that is working in rotation, where biodiversity is thriving, people want to be in that land. They're enjoying that land. And they're saying, oh, farmer, you're doing a magnificent job. Um, and they, they resent the subsidies, the, the financial payments that are going to farmers much, much less. And at the same time as doing all of this, by the way, that land's producing, producing fantastic food. food. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. and, and the, the nutrients that are coming out of that soil are going into the food in a way that, that doesn't happen otherwise. So there's there's so much stuff that soil can do. And one of the you know, what you mentioned what what Claire was doing at FAI and the award that they won. It was the Compassion Award Farming uh, Food um, uh, Farming Sustainability Award or something like that. It was it was a big award that they they'd won, but it was with McDonald's. Yeah. McDonald's were funding the work that they were doing now. A lot of people, if they hear the name McDonald's in association with sustainable agriculture, will find that you know really counterintuitive. But actually, McDonald's UK has been pushing McDonald's Europe and McDonald's Global um, to move in in more sustainable directions for a long time. And so now you have a situation where the majority of the cows that they're using in a standard beef burger are, are from the dairy industry. They're, they're cull cows. They're cows that are at the end of their productive dairy life that are then being reused as a waste product into McDonald's burgers. Um, they're using UK producers and they're building up those relationships with the UK producers for, uh, for other beef products. They're using UK potatoes. It's RSPCA assured pork that they're using, MSC certified fish. It's free range eggs, um, organic milk. You know, there's so much stuff that they're doing. Um, and, and so, you know, if I want to go for a sustainable meal, you know, aside from the packaging element hmm. and the processing element, actually McDonald's isn't a bad place to start. Which is a really weird thing to say, but good. <laughs> which is which is great, but it also shows that you know there are big companies out there that if they get it, they can make really big change yeah. um, because they have that supply base, uh, and and we want to see more uh, more companies doing that. And the other thing I just wanted to mention was in terms of that whole soil um, and losing the topsoil thing, because I can remember you know really evocative picture that I saw a satellite image of Britain after a big flood yes. event. And Britain almost doubled in size because of the topsoil plumes that you were seeing coming out of the Bristol Channel, coming out of the Thames Estuary and other yeah. rivers. And the Clyde and the Dee, yeah. And what you what you do with regenerative agriculture is to make soil more resilient so you're not losing huge amounts of topsoil every time it rains. You're retaining that and growing it. You're growing more soil. You know, what could be better than that? You're also not getting the huge algal plumes that we also see on satellite pictures coming out of those rivers at the times when everyone's been spraying their fields and it's been going into the rivers and gone out into the sea and killed everything except the blue-green algae. So, so brilliant. Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, uh, especially, you know, when, when farmers are in transition, uh, from you know one form of agriculture to regenerative, you know there there may still be a need to use uh, the odd chemical here and there, but the the aim is not to use any of that. And and if all farmers were just using a little bit of synthetic chemical um, every now and then, we'd be in a very 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 different position to the way we are now, where as you say, so many rivers are filled with nitrates and and other pollutants, which then just get washed into the sea, and then the impact of land-based agriculture has a big impact on our coastlines and our estuaries and on the health of the, the ocean more, uh, more widely. And that's it for the first part of our conversation with Finlow. Our conversation was so fruitful and so inspiring and so frankly fascinating that I really didn't want to stop. And so rather than hit you with an hour and a half of our conversation, we have divided it into two, but the second part will be available now. You can go and listen to the rest of the pearls of wisdom that Finlow was offering. And in the meantime, 
if there is any way that you can be involved in the regenerative agriculture of your area, if there are community-supported agriculture projects, if there are small farms, if there are ways that you can contribute to crowdfunding to help young people buy a farm that can become a project for a community, that can feed wider than the immediate local community, then please do whatever it takes to get involved. And for the rest, do whatever you can to foment political change in your area. One conversation, one action, one movement at a time. So the second part of this podcast will follow on immediately. And for this, thank you to Kara C for the engineering and for the sound at the head and foot. Thank you to Faith Tilleray for the website and the tech. And thank you for listening. If you know of anybody else who wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you shortly. Thank you and goodbye.